Electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the fund's investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. Live from the NASDAQ market site overlooking New York City's Times Square, this is Fast Money. I'm Melissa Lear. Traders on the desk are Tim Seymour, Carter Worth, Steve Grasso, and Guy Adami. Tonight on Fast, Nike breaking out to new all-time highs. But is this record run about to hit the wall? We'll debate it. Plus, we'll tell you what sent shares of Tesla into overdrive today. And later, big changes of Boeing. The company's CEO stripped of his chairman title. But you'll hear from one industry insider who says, too little, too late. We begin, though, with a moment of truth for the markets. We are just hours away from earnings season kicking off in a big way with results from Citi, Goldman, J.P. Morgan Chase, and Wells Fargo all out before tomorrow's opening bell. So will the banks be the bellwether for the markets as we head into the rest of earnings season? Guy Dunn. I don't know if they're the bellwether, Mel. And I'm, I'm a little tired, as you know, because late night for us Yankee fans. Oh, yeah, it was Tim a late night. Steve oh, yeah. let's, you know, I'm a New York fan. Go Yankees. Yeah. But let's, let's talk markets. So we do what we need to do in Houston, <laughs> as you know, Mal. But it comes to me, it's not the bellwether, but are there trading opportunities? And I still think there are. I mean, Citibank, to me, was an interesting play a couple weeks ago. It proved to be correct. But tangible book and cities are coming around 69 bucks. I think what you'll see is a bounce after earnings on the back of that. It trades anywhere from... 85% of tangible book to 1.2. And I think that's what's going to happen now. But in terms of a bellwether for the broader market, I don't believe that to be the case. I think it's about positioning. We've all talked about that. And I think positioning has been negative in the financials. I've been negative in the financials. But I do believe estimates have come in enough that you can sort of walk over them. So I think you're going to have a tradable bounce in the financials, but longer term, I would not be there. You've been positive on some financials. I've been positive on the banks, and it, it's hard to go into the third quarter. As Steve says, I think the expectations have, have certainly been adjusted. Uh, you're going to have mildly weaker loan growth. People are going to be looking at net interest margins. I, I, I will say, for all the heat the banks have taken, net interest margins before the last two quarters, and I realize it's back, but we're at six-year highs. So banks weren't getting credit for profitability that was inherent, and yet they were giving you record profits. So uh, I don't think these are going to be terrible numbers. The, the, what I would be most worried about, especially we're talking about a barometer for the economy. Sure. I, want to, I want to look at what they're doing in terms of loan reserves. I want to see what these guys are putting aside. Mm-hmm. Has the world really gotten that much worse? They know. And I think people want to hear that right now. I don't think it, it has. But that's the read on banks right now if we're supposedly at the crossroads of, of the economy. Yeah, what are they saying about credit, delinquencies? Right, and all like that's that. at record lows because you don't do it until it starts raining. But what we know is that this is an area of the market that's basically on a relative basis not paid for the risk embraced by being there. Just to consider this, going into the year, consensus was that the big banks would have another $15 billion in revenue this year. It's going to end up being only $2 billion. Now, what cuts the other way is, of course, they're unleashing their buybacks, right? They've got uh, approval from the Fed. So it's, it's, a, it's all going to be about cost-cutting, right? And that really is what we've got to look for if one's hopeful. And the sweet spot is housing. So it's the same type of thing. We have mortgage originations, then you have refinancing. How long does that last? How much of a boon is that going to be for the financials? And I think that getting back to the positioning, if people are on one side of the boat, this market has surprised a lot more people. Mm-hmm. Uh, to Carter's point, though, I mean, Bespoke tweeted this out. That in the nine past quarters, Morgan Stanley traded down on the day of earnings every single time. 
no matter what they did with their earnings. Well, Good, bad, they traded lower. What does that tell you, then? It tells me that Morgan Stanley's probably in businesses where their margins yeah. where are just been going, getting cut every single quarter. I mean, it's harder and harder for a Morgan Stanley and a Goldman Sachs, for that matter, to make money. I think that's what you're seeing to answer that question. But in terms of Citi and J.P. Morgan, listen, the reason why I think Citi is interesting is because it vacillates, as I mentioned earlier. So tangible book and Citi will come in around $69 tomorrow, give or take. 1.1 times tangible book was sort of it's where it's traded on the upper end. That's a $75 stock. Go back to this time last year, and that's where it topped out at, which is what I think is going to happen again tomorrow. J.P. Morgan, which everybody says is the best bank, they are, but they're rewarded in terms of valuation. So you're approaching almost two times tangible book and J.P. Morgan. At a certain point, that just becomes too expensive, in my and, opinion. And, and J.P. Morgan and Carter's going to give me some. We've had a little spat about this because it's true. I can pick J.P. Morgan's chart and say not that bad of a chart, right? It's actually That's outperformed the S&P by a little bit over the last two years, um, even though it's not representative of all of them. And, and so guys talking about Morgan Stanley, Goldman Sachs, look, asset managers, and it's really as much Morgan Stanley as anybody, um, asset managers are seeing massive compression in terms of uh, everything that they do in terms of commissions and in terms of uh, their market share. And so I, I don't think you're going to see great numbers out of Morgan Stanley. The flip side of all this, and for money center banks, and even for Morgan Stanley, on the capital market side, with record low rates again, you saw a lot of folks rushing to refinance in the corporate bond market and the issuance bond market. I think you're going to continue to see uh, pretty good momentum into the fourth quarter, and I think they're going to guide to that. And mortgage, and Steve talked about housing. I mean, look, that all very good for a mortgage business that was largely dead in the first half of the year when rates were going a lot higher. So I don't think it's a terrible story. Uh, I just think it's not an extraordinary story. For part of this quarter, though, we had inversion of the year curve mm-hmm. until basically a week ago. So how do you think that manifests itself in, in the yeah, earnings? I think the, that's, that's not yet sort of a, a case for good or bad. I think mm-hmm. you have to say this. The objective all the time is to try to find something that's about to get exciting, break out or break down, to get long, get short. It belies that sometimes things are fallow. We've talked about this. I love that word, fallow. Banks are probably not going to do anything. We don't use not it enough collapse. on the show. We really don't. Not going to collapse. Can we define fellow, Cardin? Yeah, I feel like I'm, well, I feel like I'm a fellow. Am I a fellow? You're a good fellow. <laughs> hey, forget about it. Hey, forget about it. So, I mean, why can't it be that it can't, not everything is directional all the time. Sometimes things just are where they belong. And banks are kind of in that spot. By the way, Carter's tie. You know, is the seat. Autumn, I know autumn. that because that's what you, that's right. that's what you say about though. this particular tie every single time Carter wears it, yeah. no matter what the season. Well, he doesn't wear it all the time. I mean, he just happens to be wearing it on a day that feels a lot like I fall. Of you. I mean, to sort of tie a well, ribbon uh, on well, this. Go ahead. What I've were you going to well, say? I've got a chance to do that. I mean, look, he's, it's fall earnings season. This is what we're talking. It's about time we got into real bottom up in terms of all we do is talk about trade wars. All we do is yeah. talk about the top down. All we do is talk about the Fed. Let's get at it. Carter's tie tells us it's time for fourth quarter uh, guidance uh, as we get into third quarter or the fall. And people uh, have been tremendously negative on all of those fronts mm-hmm. on the macro. So this might be a good respite to start and looking for fundamentals. A lucky and tie. Look, look and get thick and get deep. And if they surprise which I do think they will as a whole, earnings, that is, I think uh, the market can drift. Well, it doesn't, he- it doesn't hurt that estimates have been coming down, particularly exactly. for financials, going into this season. So you might have a bit of a 
Watch this. What? Crop rotation. Oh. <laughs> See what I did there, Carter? Wow. <laughs> so, in I terms mean, of I might not recover. <laughs> yeah. You might have, but, I, but again, I think it's going to be short-lived. Again, I think City to 76, maybe J.P. Morgan to 120, and then those things get sort of ahead of their skis. Well, that's just it. Do you go best in class, J.P. Morgan, which right. is full, perhaps valuation, or do you double back and find a dud like Wells Fargo that's been lagging and play it for catcher? Both techniques are valid. I, I, don't think, I don't think Wells Fargo is a name that you're going to see re-rate anytime soon. I, I think there's still so much lack of trust. The new CEO in place? I, I, I think there's still a lot of work to do there. Uh, but I, I think the other side of J.P. Morgan historically in the last five years has been Citibank in terms of the quality. Um, and I think when Citibank, you really have a valuation argument. And I think they have a, a fair amount of leverage in some global businesses that I, I they're, you know, they're one of the first banks to really sell off in the third quarter based upon what we were seeing around the world. If you think I think that a lot of people talk about stabilization here. I go back to macro. But, but if you think that PMIs and whatnot have actually started to stabilize, um, Citibank over J.P. Morgan is a better trade. Well, Carter's got a few uh, key levels in some of these names. Carter, so why don't you head on over to the plaza and show us. And Citi is going to come out as Ooh. best pick over here, except for one, which is so bad uh, that I think it is fantastic. Here we go. The index, 24 stocks, total market cap, $1.5 trillion. The top four names are 68% of the index, and here they are. It's the who's who, and all of them are reporting this week. Let's look at them one at a time. And the reference point I'm using is the peak for global equities in January of 2018. So J.P. Morgan keeps trying to break out. My hunch is that it won't really break out and won't really sort of deteriorate, and that it's just stuck. So here is a fallow circumstance, and I think it's not so interesting. Not bad, not good, just belongs there. Now, Bank America, as we can see, has never quite gotten to the high, and I think that's the opportunity, a little bit of a catch-up potential with J.P. Morgan. Next, of course, is City, which has, I'm sorry, Wells, which is, is this so bad it's good? Hold this thought. I don't think it's so bad it's good because it never quite got all the way down to its 2016 low. So not so interested here. Citibank is the one with Bank America, sort of these two, which I think will ultimately make a run for their highs and play catch up with J.P. Morgan. But then look at sort of the worst of all. And this one I do believe is so bad it's good. State Street, it is right at this low and it is at a held three times. It held again. Now look at the day-to-day chart and look at this trend line. It has literally failed at this line over and over and over and over and over. And guess what it just did? It just broke out. That's a major development. It's a head and shoulders bottom. It's a favorite so bad it's good. And just to juxtapose it against, look at the bifurcation with best in class, obviously different uh, as a custody bank. I think this one and City are the ones to be most aggressive with on the long side. Carter, come on back. Um, you know, he, what Carter was effectively doing there was a game of would you rather. He's no, he's self-would-you-rather. Is he allowed to do that now? Yeah, come on. State Street? I mean, he just did. Of course he's allowed. He's fellow. Um, so maybe we should, so we so should so continue let's, the let's game. And say, you know, oh, so I'll play the would you rather. Yeah. I'll go all day long with this. We okay. can do a whole show oh, really? of would you rather. Well, at least we would I would rather not do a whole show. That's your would you rather. That's a lot of My would you rather. And Carter Spike. State Street. Now, the double bottom he's talking about, that goes back to July 2016. So the duration is such where this is a meaningful 
double bottom. So against $51-ish, State Street, I think, looks fascinating at these levels. So playing the game correctly, yes. I would rather State Street over J.P. So Morgan. I would fade that, and I would actually uh, trade back that's America. Game. So, so, so what about City? But you like City best. I, li- I like City, but if you gave me money, set, money center back, would you rather? And, and Bank of America, is because I think we've talked about City and J.P.M., I just want to point out, of all the big money center banks, I think they have the most ability to cut costs in, a, in a, uh, a, a regulatory environment that's very friendly to the banks. May not be this good for a long time from this point on. They are cutting costs and offsetting a lot of the weakness that we're seeing from net interest margins. Their capital give back program may be more aggressive than anybody's. And that's a reason why we are seeing institutions run into the big banks. What game do you want to play? Because apparently it's so. I'm going to pick. I'm going to pick one of one of the stocks here. that Carter spoke about. Uh-huh. Wells Fargo. I'm going to pick the laggard. I'm going to pick the underperformer. Or I'm going to pick the underperformer. I think that one is right. You crave Wells Fargo. That one is ripe for a positioning issue where you have everyone uh, in the bear camp waiting for this one to recover. Many people think it'll never recover. I think it's worth a couple of percentage points to the upside after they report. That's like a quasi-pick-your-poison game, which we haven't created the graphics for yet. But like maybe, a skull, crossbones. I mean, no, but I think we, that's a fantastic, that could be a wonderful fast. Yes, especially as we go into the Halloween season. What's the game with the bird? It doesn't make sense. That's traded or faded, I think. No, it's yield hunting. I know, but what? there's one of them that makes no sense. It sounds They both sound the same. It's shop it or drop it. Shop it or drop it. I mean, they both sound. I mean, a lot of them don't make sense, What was the one with the panda? <laughs> Different show. Different show. Speaking of the banks, speaking of the banks, we're going to hear from Wells Fargo CFO John Shrewsbury tomorrow afternoon, 3 p.m. Eastern Time, right here on CNBC. We are just getting started here on Fast Up Next, racing higher. Tesla bulls putting the pedal to the metal. We'll tell you what gave shares a big boost today and later. Crisis management. Boeing announcing major changes to its board, but is it too little, too late? We'll debate it. We're live from Times Square in New York City. Much more Fast Money right after this. You seek the key, but first, you must learn the ways of precision, craft, and performance with Acura's all-electric ZDX. With a premium Bang & Olufsen sound system up to a 313-mile range and a Type S variant with an estimated 500 horsepower, the ZDX is their most powerful SUV yet. Unlock the energy when you visit Acura.com to order yours today. Welcome back to Fast Money. Tesla topping the tape today. The electric automaker surging nearly 4% on a report that China will require all ride-sharing vehicles to be electric. This coming as Tesla's Gigafactory in China reportedly nears completion, while demand for Model X and Model 3 cars in the country ramps up thanks to a 10% tax credit from the Chinese government for EV ownership. Meanwhile, Tesla's gearing up to report earnings next Wednesday. The company missed delivery targets for the third quarter. So how should investors be preparing for this tape? Are you still short, Tim? Still short. Uh, I think the, the cash flow issue is really what, it, what matters most. Remember, Model 3 is supposed to be uh, the every man and woman's car. It's supposed to be affordable. It's supposed to be $35,000. Uh, and it seems to me that that's not something they can do. They've never been able to produce this car comfortably uh, and profitably. And then the S and some of the cash cows, I think have, we've seen demand year over year come down dramatically. Uh, I don't think right now that Tesla is the savior for China. Uh, and at a time when I think China is looking to uh, establish their own players in tech land, I don't, I don't think they're going to be giving away the farm to Tesla. And in fact, I would argue at a time when we're having a major 
standoff with China on technology and you know, the 21st century, I don't think they're going to be backing Tesla in a way that means you know, demand I, in China. I would agree. I mean, I, I agree with you. I mean, I agree that China probably has its, its own interests in, in perpetuating and helping uh, its homegrown industry. But at the same time, Tesla is one of the few companies led into the country without a joint venture, right? I mean, it has a gigafactory in Shanghai, and it didn't have to partner with anybody for yeah. it. Well, be, so yeah. that's pretty extraordinary in terms of just the signaling to the world of letting Tesla in. And, and China's done a good job of letting people in who they've wanted to, you know, basically help build an industry and then show them to the door or at least make it be under China's terms. I'm, I'm sure and, that's and what's plus you on. have the another interesting angle is you have the tax credits going away here and they're showing up in China. At the end of the year, they're done. Uh, in the United States. But you also have a 25% short interest. And Tesla is above its 50, its 100, and its 200-day moving average right now. So I think it's about good news and positioning in this one as well. The question is how much of what might be coming that's better is already priced in. We had that June 3rd low at 176. It's trading at 250 or 45% off the low. At this point, I think you fade it. I agree with Carter. I mean, I, listen, and Steve makes a great point. I think that's what Tesla has going for it is 36 million shares or so of short interest, and people are covering. October 3rd, this stock looked like it was going to go down below $200 when they reported those delivery numbers. The stock was down 6%. It got a lifeline over the last couple of days. That's great. But into October 23rd, if this stock continues to levitate, I think you get out, and if you're aggressive like Tim, I think you can play it from the short side, absolutely. Would you play it from the short side? I mean, you said you'd rather, I mean, if you had to be directional, I'd rather be short than long. Wow. What will cause you to reevaluate your short at this point. They, they need to show that they have a sustainable business without capital markets being wide open for them and not caring about profitability, oh, so this is deliveries, a short corporate governance. Yeah, yeah I, this, look, this is a structural short. This is a company that I, I, I think um, has significant issues in terms of their ability to do what they said they're doing. It's not about the technology. It's a beautiful car, by the way. Um, and, you know, Elon Musk is somebody that's done a lot of great things for this country. But I, I, I still have major issues with the governance and the disclosure and, and the level of transparency around this company. Yeah. There was a great vanity. F- you know, I, I'm, I'm predisposed to read the Vanity Fair. I know. I like yes. the long-form it's, it's articles. It's I take that as a compliment. Yeah, it is. And I know it's not meant to be, but I, I'll take it that way. I like the matter. There was a very interesting piece about you know, Mr. Musk and what's going on. And if you read that, you're saying to yourself, not only is this a $200 stock, it's probably a close to a $100 stock. Mm. But I digress. I think Tim's right. I think in October 23rd, you take profits, and if you're aggressive, you short the name. This is a stock where both the shorts and the longs can be right. Right? It depends on the month. This stock is up 20% in two months. So it takes the heart of a lot of people. And then it could drop another 20%. So there's enough room for everyone to be right. And, and I get the point of selling it. But the problem is a stock like this gains momentum. It looks like it's building a quasi base right around these levels. So I'll take the other side of Carter because it's a trading show. Forced to pick. I'd rather be a buyer than a seller now. That's a would trade you rather. It. Oh, it's a trader to fade it. <laughs> I can't. The game well. starts to creep up on me. I mean, they're, That's they're, a would you rather. They can be very confusing. For I, and, uh, I still think just, you know, if there's a closing point here, maybe this yeah. won't be the closing point. I don't think the stock price reflects anything. I don't think the stock price reflects right. fundamentals. I don't think it reflects the balance sheet. I don't think it reflects true demand. Um, I think the stock, uh, if they were to uh, find themselves in, I, I think we've actually already started to see restructuring. But this stock could have major, major issues, and then suddenly you wake up one day and you see that on the tape, and it's you know, a $200 stock. Uh, I think that's the way this thing trades. Right. We've got much more ahead here on Fast Money. Here's what's coming up next. Streaming higher. Netflix shares jumping despite a string of price target cuts. We'll find out what's next for this stock. But first...
crisis management. Boeing making big changes to its board. But is it too little, too late? We'll debate it when Fast Money returns. What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration, our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. What does it mean to be rich? Maybe it's less about reaching a magic number and more about discovering the magic in life. At Edward Jones, our dedicated financial advisors are the people you can count on for financial strategies that help support a life you love. Because the key to being rich is knowing what counts. Learn more about our comprehensive approach to planning at edwardjones.com slash findyourrich. Edward Jones, member SIPC. Welcome back to Fast Money. Big changes at Boeing. The company's board stripping CEO Dennis Mullenberg of his chairman title. This is Boeing works to return its grounded 737 MAX planes to the sky. Let's get to Phil LeBeau in Chicago with the details. Hey, Phil. Hey, Melissa. This decision was made on Friday, and today the market didn't have a whole lot of reaction to this. The new executive, non-executive chairman, I should point out, at Boeing is a longtime director, David Calhoun, who has been on the Boeing board for about a decade. He joined it back in 2009. Blackstone Senior Managing Director, that's where he's at right now. He's also on the board of Caterpillar, and he's got vast experience when it comes to large industrial companies. Spent 26 years at GE. At one point, he was running the GE Aircraft Engine Division. What's he going to be doing at Boeing now that he's the non-executive chairman? Basically, when they laid out this announcement, he said, I'm going to be focusing in part on the oversight of safety. That's the big push at Boeing right now. They've made a number of changes that have already been designed to uh, increase and change the culture at Boeing, which then brings up the question, what's Dennis Mullenberg doing since he's going to be strictly CEO and focusing on day-to-day operations? It's all about the MAX. They have said and they maintain that it will be recertified and back in service this quarter. That means they've got 10 weeks to clear a number of hurdles with the, the regulators to get this recertified. Don't forget that on October 30th, He will be on Capitol Hill. There will be a congressional hearing. You can bet there will be a lot of questions about the culture at Boeing and whether or not safety has been sacrificed in the rush to increase production, to push out the max. By the way, as you take a look at shares of Boeing, as I mentioned, stock really didn't do a whole lot. It sold off a little bit at the end of the day, but there was not a lot of movement on this announcement where they are splitting the CEO and chairman jobs. Do you think, um, Phil, that if Dennis Mullenberg doesn't get the max back up in the skies by the end of the fourth quarter, that Calhoun will be named CEO? Uh, I think it might be a little soon to say that, Melissa, and whether or not it's David Calhoun or somebody else. Look, I think they're very reluctant to change the leadership, the day-to-day leadership of Dennis Mullenberg. Kevin McAllister is at Boeing Commercial Airplanes in the midst of everything that's going on right now. Would that advance the cause and make them get the max back up and get the production ramp back up in 2020 any faster. I, I, I'm, the feeling that I'm getting from the uh, company is, no, they don't believe that's the case. Now, 
It's a separate question, and I know you alluded to this earlier today when we were talking. What does this mean for Dennis Mullenberg's future, let's say six months from now, mm-hmm. once the MAX is recertified? Um, that's an entirely separate question. But I don't get the feeling that they want to make a wholesale change in leadership at this point. Right. Phil, thank you. Phil LeBeau in Chicago. Our next guest says Boeing's move to strip Mullenberg as chairman of the board is too little too late. He recently wrote an op-ed calling for Mullenberg to step down completely. Let's bring in Ernie Arvey, president of Air Insight Group. He joins us on the fast line. Hey, Ernie, great to have you with us. Uh, My pleasure, Melissa. Um, Do you think that we'll take a look back and think this was sort of uh, the precursor to Dennis Mullenberg being booted and, and somebody else taking over? I, I think it uh, it it may be at least makes the makes the job easier splitting the chairmanship from the uh, from the CEO, which most companies do anyway from the standpoint of governance. So, I think that's uh, probably long overdue at Boeing, uh, but it also makes it easier for Calhoun and the board at uh, at some point should uh, the Max not come back on a timely basis uh, to make that decision down the road. I think right now the focus of the company and certainly the focus of, uh, of Kevin McAllister, who's the CEO of BCA, is to, uh, to work with their customers during this, uh, during this crisis. And uh, Mullenberg has become the, the PR point man for the company uh, on the issue. So it's, it's his baby. You uh, wrote before, and I believe this was at least a a couple months ago, that you thought Mullenberg should step down. Um, Why is that? And and are we at a a point in time with the recertification of the MAX where it it wouldn't actually be good for him to step down at this point? It uh, it may not be the optimal uh, optimal timing for him to step down, but the question is uh, how how hands-on is he in the leadership of of the project to uh, to bring the the max back as a ceo of the of the holding uh, of the larger company uh the day-to-day folks are in seattle with the engineering and he may be involved in some of the uh, some of the high level lobbying with the faa and others uh but uh i don't think he's crucial to the to the day-to-day uh recertification of the max uh what he is uh crucial for is the strategy and if we look at the future programs at Boeing, we've got uh, three major programs that are uh, that are currently underway for projects. Four with with the tanker, and the fifth is possibly the new aircraft. The seven three seven we know is uh, is having difficulties both with the Max and now with the pickle forks on the on the NG models. Uh, the seven eighty seven, while they had all of the early problems with that airplane, seemed to get them straightened out, except for quality. And airlines are still complaining about the quality of the product uh, that's coming out of one of the plants. The 777X has been delayed. Uh, the 767 tanker, uh, which is used by KC-46 for the Air Force, uh, is not performing well and not meeting specifications and uh, currently isn't carrying passengers or cargo. And the new middle market airplane, the 797, is uh, is delayed again pending the decision to move forward, uh, pending all the problems with the MAX. So if you look at five products for the company, all five have problems right now. That's not a great way to set your strategy for the future. Well, Ernie, it's Guy. I think you just answered my question, but I'll ask it anyway. I mean, the, the 737 news happened in March. It's mid-October. Does this speak to maybe bigger problems at Boeing, and you're surprised that it's lasted as long as it has? 
I'm not surprised. When this first happened, we predicted uh, we predicted second quarter of 2020 for a return into service, uh, given the uh, the nature of the problems, which went just beyond the the MCAS system to the flight control system as well. And in viewing that as an integrated whole from a from a certification standpoint, which the FAA really uh, dropped the ball on the first time going around. And, uh, there are some allegations that Boeing hid things from the from the FAA, and I'm sure we'll see that come down later once federal investigations are complete. But uh, but clearly, it's uh, it's a little more serious an issue given the the nature of the airplane, which is a hybrid of old technologies dating back to 1967 when the first models were done uh, to today's technologies in some of the areas. We've got partial fly-by-wire on the airplane. We've got a fly-by-wire uh, spoiler system now. Uh, but but many of the other controls are mechanical, so we've got a hybrid of new and old in the in the airplane. Mm-hmm. And the avionics suite is uh, is a little bit old. It looks nice on the outside, but on the inside, it's it's last generation technology. Right, Ernie. Uh, so mm-hmm. it's it's a mix. Ernie, thanks so much for phoning in. We appreciate your insights. My pleasure. Ernie RV. Um, and for all those problems that Ernie uh, says Boeing has, the stock is only down 16% from its highs. I'll tell you what, it's pretty extraordinary. And so, therefore, the bears might say, hey, why do you need to run in here when, in fact, these delays, if you get into, tw- I think if you even get into the second quarter, I think the street's going to downgrade the stock even more. I think most of the street's around first quarter in terms of when you get 737 max. Uh, you also had 787 uh, deliveries, which I think expected this quarter, they're probably going to be minus five or six or seven planes. So some of the stuff's not in there. In terms of Mullenberg, in terms of what they did, they had to do something here. I, I, you know, the, stripping the guy of the chairmanship and keeping him in the CEO chair doesn't bother me at all. And, and in fact, I mean, under Mullenberg, I mean, this stock has been a three-bagger in the last three years. Before this tragedy, and these are tragedies, and certainly if they were keeping anything from the FAA and the public, they deserve to have major repercussions. But in the absence of that, this is a company that has never been run better, never had better free cash flow. It does sound like, flow. to Melissa's point, uh, it, that, that it's, it's a two-step process, that he's eventually going to be out of the company. I, that, that's, it's almost as if they want to see if he can get the max back in the air, not, see that, and if not, they have cover to actually fire him. But the stock actually has the support around the 200-day moving average, which is 368. So if you did want to take a stab at it at these levels, that's what you use as your exit. I think you hit on a key thing. If you, if you, if you didn't know the news, this stock in Q1 of 16 to Q1 of 19, a three-year run Crazy. of 370%. That's a CAGR of 65% a year for a three-year period. Very few instances in its history where it did that. And so it's resting. It, it got ahead of itself, and now it's... it's resting, but not fallow. It's not fallow. It's dormant. It's dormant. Yes, it's like s- system suspended <laughs> and soon to come to life. All right. Can I just mention one thing? One I know we're thing. late on time. But there are a lot. Of, today's Columbus Day, as you know, it so is. a lot of probably a lot of college students watching right now, and they heard Carter just say Kager. I want them to understand <laughs> the Kager that he's talking it's about is not the same. Not much different. It's C-A-G-R. As no, but it's important to make or, that distinction. Or he could have been talking about that He one. may have. We don't know. We don't know. Or the shocks you used to have in your Camaro. I think those were Kragers. Right. Excellent uh, point by Tim. Right. Still ahead. Still ahead. Streaming higher. Netflix share is getting a pop despite a string of price target cuts. We will tell you how Wall Street analysts are setting up for this week's earnings. And later, the one luxury retail stock getting sacked today because of handbags. We'll bring you that name. Stick with us. Fast Money will be back right after this.
Welcome back to Fast Money. Netflix getting a bounce today, but the stock is still down 23% over the past three months. And now there's a flurry of analyst notes hitting the street ahead of earnings Wednesday afternoon. Let's get to Julia Borson in Los Angeles with more on this. Hey, Julia. Hey, Melissa, that's right. A lot of big questions for Netflix here ahead of earnings. Can it reverse the decline in U.S. subscribers that we saw last quarter? Its first decline in those uh, domestic subscribers you've seen in years. And can it rev up overall growth? And what will the flood of new streaming services mean for this company? Now, the company did give up its gains from earlier this year. The stock is down about 23% over the past three months alone. And there were three analyst notes published today. One from RBC with an outperform rating on the stock and a $450 price target, saying that the company's guidance, which adds up to about 7 million subscribers in the quarter, seems reasonable with modest downside risk. RBC's Mark Mahaney writing, quote, we believe that Netflix has achieved a level of sustainable scale growth and profitability that isn't currently reflected in the stock price. Now, Raymond James reiterated its strong buy, but did trim its price target from $450 to $415 to reflect what they call, quote, near-term noise from competitor launches. The analysts did say, quote, positively, Netflix's content library is improving, citing uh, Breaking Bad spinoff El Camino, as well as Martin Scorsese's The Irishman. Now, Morgan Stanley also reiterated its overweight rating, but slashed its price target by $50 to $400 for Netflix shares, citing a more conservative approach to long-term subscriber and pricing growth, plus updated currency headwinds. Morgan Stanley writing, quote, the risk is that Netflix lacks the content franchises prevent consumers from hopping in and out of the service, keeping churn more elevated. Now, the key thing to watch here for Netflix's earnings is not just the subscriber numbers it reports for this quarter, but what kind of guidance CEO Reed Hastings gives for the fourth quarter when we will have the launch of both Disney Plus and Apple TV Plus. Guys, back over to you. All right, Julia, thank you. Julia Borston in L.A. with the latest on Netflix. Uh, Netflix has to meet the subscriber numbers. 100%. They have to. But you wonder, though, if they blew out a lot of people. Like When Reed Hastings talked about competition, basically for the first time in all the years we've been doing this, that scared a lot of people. And the stock acted in kind. And I know we're wrong. I'm wrong a lot. But this one we actually got right. We said, you know, it's going to trade probably down to 250. If it holds, you buy it. And look where it traded down to, 252. And it's bounced. I think in the earnings, people are going to chase. So I think the stock goes higher. The same thing happened with Roku, if you look. We said it's going to trade probably down to 100, hold, bounce. That stock's up another 20% from those lows. So I think you've flushed a lot of people out. Now you understand about competition. And I think a whole new series of people are going to probably chase to the upside. What does that chart look like to you? Well, just as Guy cited, you've had a bounce, about 13% off that 250 to some extent. If it is better than people are fearing, some of the potential has been exploited already, right? That's the nature of it. Almost a, sounds fallow. Again, Well, this is more dynamic. Okay. Up and down, up and down. I think you don't to, know what fellow means. I have no idea what fellow means. <laughs> I, don't, you know, I don't read Harry Potter. Um, <laughs> but but I, I think with, with Netflix, you know, Julia talked about domestic subs. How about international subs? I think international is even more important. And I think the other part of this is when, when analysts are doing their, their, their projections and their Kagers, as Guy says, um, what, what are they doing in terms of price increases? What are they doing in terms of them being able to hold on to fifteen ninety nine? I don't think anybody's thinking about a competitive price environment. We're also just talking about subs. So uh, at a time when I don't think the market is rewarding high multiple story stocks that are not profitable, I don't know why Netflix gets a pass. I think that that's... 
It, it's half the story is the competition. I think the other half is that, valuation. We've had to take a long, hard look at value versus growth, and now you're really starting to look at what you can buy. You can buy Apple. You can buy Disney. By the way, Disney's chart looks terrible. It's rolling over. It's finally below that 130 mark that it popped up above. You would have to be above 130 to rebuy Disney. And in, in this one, you have to be above the 50-day in Netflix, and the 50-day is at 288. So we're close. Right. But I don't think it's viable for multiple reasons this time, not just the competition. You know, we have been talking about Netflix all day, basically, on the network. And I was talking on Swalk on the Street and I was saying, you know, with all this competition, its ability to raise price is much more limited than it has been in the past. And there are some comments on Twitter, which I thought were interesting. There has always been competition for Netflix. So what makes it different this time around, in your view? I mean, before it was Blockbuster, before it was Redbox. I mean, it had competitors before and it still tr- managed to triumph. Why well, is it different now? Be- because I don't think we actually had real competitors in there with their own streaming services with the offerings out there. I mean, it's not just Disney, it's HBO Max, it's everybody. Uh, and then I also think it's in terms of people, it's finally, the, the cost of content is coming home to roost. These guys have had to pay an enormous amount of money. They're still not really proving to be profitable. So um, I, I also just, yes, the competition was there, but Redbox, as proven, wasn't really competition. I think Disney is real competition. And, and although I'm not counting Apple in there, when you have every other major company with cash flow uh, in this space, why do they get the lion's share? I don't think so. What ch- quickly, what changed this time is the fact that Reed Hastings was very dismissive of that competition years ago. He actually uh-huh. acknowledged it this time. And, you, start, you know, it's that old thing, don't shoot until you see the whites of their eyes. Yes. Well, I think that's exactly what happened last quarter or so with Mr. Hastings. Coming up, we've got a retail roundup. The street uh, making two big calls in the group today. We will tell you what that says about the state of the consumer. Plus, Johnson & Johnson set to report earnings tomorrow, but options traders are betting on a breakdown. We've got much more Fast Money right after this. Welcome back to Fast Money. Nike racing higher after an upgrade from Bank of America Merrill Lynch. It is our call of the day. The firm upping Nike to a neutral from an underperform, uh, boosting the stock's price target to 98 bucks a share. B of A says it believes Nike will work more aggressively to make Nike-branded product more accessible to everyone across the globe. Nike hitting another all-time high today. So how far can Nike run from here? Steve, what do you say? I don't like Nike for various reasons, but you can't deny the chart. The chart is amazing. It's up close to 30%, and it does look like nothing is getting in the way. The first, the way the, the way the stock recovered originally was the recovery in North America. Then it became an international story again, and it's always been both, and they seem to be hitting on every cylinder. I'm waiting for when Under Armour, the underperformer, starts to perform, and it seems like I'm turning blue in the face waiting for that day. Do you think Nike will be stung by what's going on in China? Boy, if anyone's been resilient, it's been Nike, right? Yeah. And, and they're doing it with higher ASPs, uh, and they're doing it also with, with a, a wholesaling business that seems to be very strong. So um, it, it's, it's another one of these arguments for why the multiple can go higher along with the stock. I, you know, it trades in, in the stratosphere relative to itself at this point. But uh, I, I think you have to wonder whether they deserve this type of, a, of an upgrade in multiple based upon their ability to control both the, the, the wholesale market, the DTC market. So they're going straight out there and they've got a higher price product. To be clear, though, this upgrade, I mean, the guy was at an underperformed for a long from time. Underperformed. Yeah. Wasn't pounding the table. To a neutral right. now. And the street has been right. behind it all year. I mean, to start the year, the consensus price target was $72. I mean, here we are at 94, so people are moving up their targets after the fact. 
Right. I think it continues to go higher. I understand what Steve's saying. Valuation has been a concern, but it's been a concern for a long time. I think it trades probably 28 times forward earnings at current price. But if you look at the stock, you know, it had trouble at $90 a number of times, finally broke through. Maybe we'll do in trader jargon a back and fill back to 90 But I think the stock, you know, if Dan, Dan Nathan were here. Which, oh, he was on the closing bell in the market zone today. He was on the zone? Was he in the, he the zone? zone? He was so in the with Dan's zone. on the market zone. Dan's market zone. With the DMZ. You like that? DMZ. So they, 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 he what should what actually did. copyright that. But with that said, he would say stocks that trade 92 go to, go to 100. 100. He's probably right. But I do think there's further upside in, in uh, NKE. I asked about China because I read the stat today about Li Ning, right. which is the athletic retailer in China. Uh, it, the top performer in the MSCI Asia Pacific Index for the year. Sure. Top performer. Well, it, it, it's it's also a company that I, I think has seen uh, on a the delta on their growth relative to other players has right. been pretty dominant. And, and um, there's no question that pushing domestically the domestic consumption story in China. Period. Let's let's. I know we stare at manufacturing all the time, but China is successfully slowly. Uh, transitioning this economy. So um, I think right now, though, Nike is a global brand. It has cachet, um, athleisure, footwear. They've got innovation. Uh, I think it's still very hot, and I would stay there. All right. Well, while Nike got an upgrade, one retailer was left in tatters. Uh, luxury <laughs> retailer Tapestry down 3% today on a downgrade from UBS, the firm citing the resale market. The resale mm. market as a particular concern, saying consumers increasingly have the option to purchase a new coach bag for 400 bucks or use European luxury brand for, for the same price. We think many shoppers are opting for the latter choice. Guy, what are you doing? I'll tell you exactly what I'm doing. I actually read that. I read that down and I thought of you, Guy. Well, no, I mean, you go to the real real. I mean, I don't want to give a plug to the real real, but I mean, why buy buy some crazy Chanel bag for bust-out retail? When you go or, in the real, or why buy a brand new Coach bag for four hundred bucks? I think no that's sense. the issue. Who, right, that's who's paying four hundred dollars for a Coach bag? I mean, I, I know I'm not. Um, I, I think if if I'm going for a Coach bag, I'm going for probably a hundred dollar bag. But I, I think that's part of the issue. I think Coach has certainly been raising the prices and trying to compete on that level. I don't think they will. Yeah, I mean, there are certain brands that have that problem. Coach, I think, is one of them. Kate Spade is another, where the price points are a little bit too high. Um, to be called something that's more affordable, but not high enough or not enough cachet to be considered luxury. So that makes the competition these used items. You get, on sites you get like middle, the as they say. And Put it this you, Carter, you come home with a coach bag or you come home with a real, real. I don't come home with bags. But I, <laughs> Carter comes home with nothing. It, right, I think. But if, right. you're, if your lovely wife was going to get a gift, which, which, you know, would you rather? Right. You'd rather pick the one that she's going to like more. And typically that's the one that costs a little more. <laughs> I think well, you wait. So for in terms of tapestry, if you want to play the yeah. stock, I think they report, I think, November 5th or thereabouts. Look, the stock has bounced from $20 to current levels, obviously down today. I think you've got to wait. I still think there's further room to the downside. Maybe you buy it on a flesh-out post-earnings. I don't think there's any reason to buy it right here. Does this mean that the real real is an investment? It's up uh, 26 Let me just say something about the, the real real. I, the, I love the real real. It saved I'm me just, money. It's, I mean, you know, my, I see those real, real things coming in and out of my house, and I'm happy. All right? I know we're Better saving that money. Better the full price Absolutely. Version. Go for it. <laughs> coming up, Keep Johnson up, honey. Johnson reporting earnings tomorrow. We will give you the lowdown from the options pit next. You're live at the NASDAQ in Times Square. Much more Fast Money still ahead.
Welcome back to Fast Money. Big bank earnings are tomorrow's marquee event, but there are other names to keep on your radar, including Johnson & Johnson. J&J has had a tumultuous year, now hanging on to gains of just a percent in 2019. And options traders are betting that the stock is about to lose its grip. Mike Coase in San Francisco with the action. Mike, what are you looking at? Yeah, so Johnson & Johnson did trade above average daily options volume today. Puts outpaced calls by about three to two. To put things in perspective, that meant about 22,000 put contracts traded versus 13,000 or so on average. And the options market is implying a move of about 2.5% on earnings. Now, that may not sound like much compared to a lot of other stocks, which can move around quite a lot. But in Johnson & Johnson's case, it usually doesn't move a great deal, averaging about 2.3% over the last eight quarters. And the most active options contracts were the October 130 puts. Over 3,000 of those had traded early this morning at an average price of $1.20. And by the close, more than 5,000 contracts, buyers of those puts, are betting that Johnson & Johnson is going to fall below that 130 strike price by at least the $1.20 that they paid. That would put it a little bit below 129 And again, that's sort of in line with the move expectation that the options market is implying. But the bets are predominantly that it's going to be lower coming out of earnings. Um, Mike, thanks for that. I feel like Johnson Johnson has become sort of this battleground stock between people who believe yeah. that it's priced in all the litigation risk. I mean, I think we had J.P. Morgan come out today saying $20 billion is priced in terms of litigation risk for all of, for opioids, for talc, for, 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 talc, for every, everything under the sun for J.P. Morgan. We had Bernstein come out last week and upgrading the stock, saying that it's uh, historically cheap compared well, to itself. I, I like J&J like &J here, um, and I like that call, therefore. But I, I, I think when you think about the litigation risk uh, in opioids, I, I would acknowledge I think this is a very emotional issue, and it should be around our country, and, and this is one of the biggest drug companies in the world. And although the limitation of this, uh, I think, is probably priced in, I think it's an overhang, but I would own this stock for the long haul. And I think when you look at their pharma business, it's actually they've got a higher growth rate than the other big cap pharma. Then they've got medical devices. It's a diversified company I like. It. All true. Everything. Oh, I'm sorry, Steve. Quick. Everything he said is true, except the emotion part of it. And it, it traded on a 121 in December. I think that's probably where it's headed now. Yeah, I, I think it looks like it wants to go lower here. I need a little bit of a of a buffer. I need 133. That's the 100-day moving average in here because you're too close to the 50-day. I think if it breaks down, it gets the guys level sooner rather than later. Guys, would we dare try fallow or boring or dull yeah. yet again? Sometimes yeah. they, you know what? There's a time when you need fallow, and this may be it. This you think it's it. fallow? Well, it's just doing nothing. Why does it? Why does it always have to be directional? Sometimes assets are fairly priced. I think Jay your tie is starting to get that way for me. No, no, this is a very dynamic. Different word. <laughs> has a lot of movement. I'm sorry, guys. We want to go straight to the White House. We've got Treasury Secretary uh -oh. Stephen Mnuchin and Vice President Mike Pence. Let's listen in. Monitoring developments and has expressed his great concern about the loss of uh, civilian lives and uh, uh, the impact and the destabilizing impact that the Turkish military invasion in Syria is having in the region. And today here at the White House, the President convened a Principals Committee meeting Recommendations were made uh, to the president in just a few moments. I'll recognize the Treasury Secretary who will detail uh, punishing sanctions that have been placed on Turkey. Uh, the president also today was very active, in engaging uh, with leaders in the region. Uh, first, a telephone call with uh, Kurdish General Mazlum, uh, where he received a report about the circumstances on the ground. Uh, Syrian Defense Forces have been a strong ally of the United States of America. The president was very, very uh, interested in hearing from, from General Mazlum about uh, the status of forces on the ground. 
General Mazloum uh, reported to him that at this point uh, Turkish forces had not uh, gone beyond uh, the 30-mile uh, buffer zone, uh, but uh, General Mazloum expressed particular concern about the city of Kobani uh, and asked the president to raise that issue directly uh, with President Erdogan uh, and the Turkish uh, government uh, as a as a great concern uh, of uh, of Kurdish forces. Uh, the president, after that call, uh, spoke to President Erdogan. President Erdogan reached out and requested the call, uh, and uh, President Trump communicated to him very clearly that the United States of America wants Turkey to stop the invasion, to implement an immediate ceasefire and to begin to negotiate uh, with Kurdish forces in Syria to bring an end to the violence. Uh, President Trump reiterated his offer uh, to mediate and arbitrate a negotiation between uh, Syrian defense forces and the Turkish uh, military. Uh, and the President has directed me uh, and Robert O'Brien uh, to lead a delegation to Turkey in the immediate future to begin discussions and negotiations to bring the bloodshed to an end. The President did receive a commitment from President Erdogan to not attack the city of Kobani. As I said, General Mazloum had raised the issue of Kobani as of paramount importance to the Kurdish population. President Trump was very direct with President Erdogan on that point and received a firm commitment from President Erdogan that there would be no attack against the city of Kobani. Uh, today the President also met with Senator Lindsey Graham, uh, who was present when the President signed uh, an executive order implementing a new range of sanctions against Turkey. Uh, but again, uh, to be very clear, the President of the United States called uh, on the President of Turkey to stop the invasion. We've been listening to Vice President Mike Pence in front of the White House addressing the situation in Syria and in Turkey. Um, that does it for us here on Fast Money. What a show. We'll see you back here tomorrow at 5. Uh, Mad Money with Jim Cramer starts right now. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. FedEx Ground service is also faster to more locations than UPS Ground. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively, FedEx.